0: months ago, we here at Unorthodox were asked to be part of an important conference at the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. The idea was to celebrate a new book called Jewish Priorities by inviting a bunch of really smart Jews to tell us what we should focus on moving forward. What should our Jewish priorities be? But then October 7th happened, and it seemed like our priorities, really our entire world, completely changed, which only made the conference more urgent. So a while back, we gathered at the beautiful Weitzman Museum in Philadelphia, and we did what Jews do best, especially when times are tough. We talked. We talked about Israel and about Gaza, about Jewish storytelling and Jewish philanthropy, about the environment and religion and everything else that matters right now. The conversations weren't always easy. Sometimes, hey, we're Jews, we disagreed. But the conversations were always provocative and interesting, and we're happy to share them here with you. If you like what you hear, you should check out Jewish Priorities, edited by David Hazzoni. And you should also visit the Weitzman Museum in Philly and their truly amazing collection. But now, on to the
1: conversations. Being Jewish is about choice, and it's about birth. It's about faith, and it's about blood. And that's a dialectical relationship. We need to be teaching our children about that, and we're failing to do so.
2: What we are is a joinable tribal group with a shared history, homeland, and culture, part of which is a non-universalizing religion. That thing that I just said was like a paragraph in English. In Hebrew, it is one word, Am. We are Am Yisrael.
0: This is Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th. And these are some of the voices you'll hear on this panel called Egypt. Are we doing exile wrong? It features panelists Rabbi David Gedzelman, Ali Goldberg and Dara Horn and was moderated by my unorthodox co-host Liel Leibovitz. This panel asked what does Am Yisrael, what does Jewish peoplehood actually mean? And what role does the state of Israel play in this question?
3: I think that, that there is a, a, an older generation panic when it comes to younger people engaging in Judaism because they don't think that they're engaging with it in the right way. I don't think that's something that they should be worried about. Um, as long as we can steer the direction so that people are engaging with it in some way, that's the main thing. Maybe Judaism won't look like how it looked when the older generation w- were, grow- were growing up, but that, their version of Judaism didn't look like how it did when their parents were growing up.
4: Rather than introduce uh, a panel so esteemed uh, in which words really truly fail, uh, I'm going to ask, starting with Ali, to, uh, to have our panelists introduce themselves very briefly, and then I'll jump right in with uh, inconvenient questions.
3: Sure. Hi. Is, oh, yeah, there we go. Um, Hi, I'm Ali. I am a writer and a diversity and inclusion consultant um, currently living in Brighton, England, working on a project to revitalize the Jewish community there.
1: Hi, I'm David Gedzelman. I'm the president and CEO of the Steinhardt Foundation for Jewish Life and worked with uh, Adam and David on the project of Jewish priorities really from the beginning.
2: And I'm Dara Horn. I'm a novelist, uh, author most recently of a book called *People of Dead Jews*, and also uh, now serving as creative advisor to this here museum, the Museum of National uh, National Museum of American Jewish History, as we are uh, undergoing a redesign of the museum and a re-envisioning uh, of the museum's role in the future of American Jewish life.
4: See, this is much, much better than I could have ever hoped to do, uh, and I want to kick us off. Uh, by throwing us straight into the deep end and taking issue with the title of this panel, which I did not write. The title of this panel is, Are We Doing Exile Wrong? And before we could uh, adjudicate this question, um, Rabbi Gesserman, do you feel like you're in exile?
1: No, I don't. Um, and I don't because I, as a Zionist, I don't feel I'm an exile because um, with the creation of a vibrant, sovereign Jewish life in the land of Israel. I really believe that anyone who fully connects themselves to that life is not an exile. Now, there may be exile, but with this reality of Israel, one is not an exile. And that's that was the vision of one of my favorite early Zionist thinkers, Aaron David Gordon, who said that if Jews in the diaspora connect themselves to the revitalization of the Hebrew language, to becoming productive and sovereign in the land, then they cease to be in exile. He wrote that in an essay in 1921. So I I found the title also to be rather problematic. Dara, how does that make you feel?
2: Um, I think that a lot of us are rethinking this now. I am, I I don't even know what to say at this point, but um, one of the things that, when I published this book, People Love Dead Jews, um, which is about sort of the role that dead Jews play in a wider world's imagination, it's very much from a diaspora point of view, Um, and there were many readers who sort of challenged me on this and said like, oh, well, you know, your book, you know, the answer to your book is Israel. Right? Like, this is the place where Jews can be safe and free. And I think the most horrifying thing about the events of the past, uh, of two weeks ago, is how consistent these attacks looked with every attack that diaspora Jews have endured for thousands of years. And when I say how consistent it looked, I mean, I'm a Yiddish scholar. Like, I read all the pogrom documentation and it's like exactly the same stories. Um, you know, if you read about like the Farhud in Iraq, it's exactly the same stories. And I mean, you read about, you know, the Crusades. I mean, this is just, that to me is what was so horrifying about this attack in particular. And that's one of the things that's on my mind right now is that that this is like, in fact, a weird moment where Israeli Jews are experiencing what diaspora Jews experienced for thousands of years and that's what's so horrifying to me. So I
4: heard um I I want to push against against this for a second uh and then I'll let you start and we'll go to Ali and and back to David uh I I was on a call earlier this week because we're all on calls right these last couple how, how many how many zoom meetings calls whatsapp groups have you joined in the in the last 14 days uh with with an Israeli uh, somewhat senior military official, uh, who said, I've, I've been hearing the name, you know, Kishni have thrown around a lot. I understand the imagery. I understand the notion, basically what you just said. Uh, but I still want to stress the big difference. We're here, we're preparing to go to war. We're safe. And, and when things like this happen in the United States and it will said the, the officer, uh, you would not have the same luxury. Does that resonate with the
2: Yeah, of course. Yes. Um, but this, I, I mean, I really hope he's right and I, I believe that he is, um, but I think that that is the piece of this, like you asked before about like what's different this time and that's what's different this time.
4: That we're living with these, th- th- this th- imagery. I mean, th-
2: this is like the thing that, like one of the many things that the state of Israel was supposed to make never happen again like that's the most horrifying thing so yeah but, you but you know, for, yes
1: for some reason the the sahal spokesman ha- hasn't wanted to tell the following story very loudly but within 48 hours when when the idf did arrive um they killed 1500 hamas terrorists 1500 and and hamas doesn't want to tell that story either um I don't, That was not Kishniv.
3: Correct.
1: Ali, how are you feeling these days? <laughs>
3: um, yeah, it's an interesting question about exile. I, I don't think I would have ever used the word exile to describe how I feel. But I grew up in a fairly insular Jewish community in London, and um, it didn't mean much to me in the sense that It was just kind of there. It was something I took for granted. It wasn't something that I thought about a lot. It took becoming disconnected from the Jewish community to make me realize how I felt about my Judaism, moving to a different city which didn't have much of a community there. Um, And that's what made me feel, I guess, as I say, exile isn't the word, but it made me feel this country, and I live in England, by the way, so if that wasn't clear, but... um, it made me realize that this country wasn't built for me um, it didn't feel like my home in the same way that the Jewish community felt like my home in the sense of you know why should I have to take time off work to celebrate my holidays while my Christian colleagues got that automatically um, Why was I having to um explain parts of my identity that everyone else kind of took for granted who wasn't Jewish and I suppose that that was what made me feel that that feeling of exile, that feeling of my Jewish my Jewish identity will always separate me from the other people living around me.
4: So, since you mentioned this this interesting word "people," um, David, the essay you wrote for this yearbook uh, is is wonderful, and, and it it is one of these notions that seem like it should be obvious, uh, but maybe not as obvious as it should be. Uh, and you make the argument that we ought to double down on on jewish peoplehood what do you mean by that and, and why isn't that already something that's being done because i think a lot of people if you asked them said well of course that's what we already do
1: so in the jewish communal environment when people use the term jewish peoplehood they usually mean jewish unity and solidarity and i'm getting at this from a Kaplanian perspective of realizing that the vast majority of American Jews really don't have the language to articulate the conceptual framework of what the Jewish people is in our tradition, in our wisdom tradition, in our texts. They kind of know that it has something to do with their family. That it. That it. But but we have played a game in America for a hundred years of needing to to make the statement that being Jewish is a religion. Just like my Episcopalian neighbor, it's just a religion. And in fact, the American Jewish Committee in the early part of the century um, felt very strongly that it needed to uh, advocate to the US Immigration Commission, which had in the early part of the 20th century had, um, had categorized being Jewish as a nationality on the immigration forms of people coming to Ellis Island. And AJC, I I don't fault them for this because they understood very well that the First Amendment protects faith communities. It doesn't protect people, civilizations, languages. And and it was very important for them to argue, we're not a people. They actually, the, the documentation says we're not a people. We're not a nation. We're not a civilization. We don't have a common language. We're a religion. The problem is, is that we believed our own lie. And we don't teach our children what the dialectic of the Jewish people is, that it can't be easily cast in just a category of nation or religion, that it's a hybrid concept, and it's beautifully a hybrid concept, and has been from the moment of Yetziat Mitzrayim. Um, and, and it's an open people. People can, you know, conversion is not a later add-on in the Torah. It's right there at the moment of coming out of Egypt. V'chi <speaking in Hebrew> if, if a stranger is with you and wants to do the Pesach, let them, they have to be, they have to, they have to circumcise, they have to make a profound commitment to being part of the Jewish people, but covenantal openness has been part of this from the beginning. We are a people, we're an extended family, we're an extended family with an open adoption policy, and there are so many beautiful texts about that that teach this dialectic in powerful ways, and we don't teach our children about it at all, zero. And, and, and that's a serious problem, but I think this moment now is a watershed moment for Jewish identity in, a, in America. The president of the United States uses the term the Jewish people over and over again in, in a number of, of, of speeches, and he does it positively and powerfully, and he says you can be fully an American and you can be part of the Jewish people. Yeah, it takes a non-Jewish president to be a better Jewish educator than our Jewish edu- educators.
4: You look like you really want in on this.
2: I mean, I've I've been talking about this for a long time. So yes, um, you have. Yes, and and I should say this is also part of my role at the Weitzman, um, in sort of you know, rethinking the role of this museum. Um, which you know as David said like this was sort of part of a strategy of an earlier generation of American Jews to sort of position Jewish community as a religion um, it was you know also pushing back against you know Nazi idea of the Jews as a race I mean there's a whole history to like that to this it also even goes back as I talked on my podcast Adventures with dead Jews about uh, it goes back to Napoleon the, the, the Napoleon uh, convening this Sanhedrin and sort of you know making you know this deal with the Jews to only be this kind of identity um, Here's, and and to go back to sort of this question of like, you know, are we doing diaspora wrong? Or to let's get rid of that term exile, but are we doing diaspora wrong? Um, I think what we're missing is that there's a gigantic opportunity to change this language again and to educate people about who we actually are. This is something I've discovered in speaking about my work around the country. I speak to a lot of Jewish audiences, but also to many, many non-Jewish audiences. As, as your
4: family member lovingly calls you, I hope I can reveal this. Oh, You're, yes. the, you're the anti-Semitism Lorax. Yes. You speak for the Jews.
2: <laughs> yes. I have fallen into this role of the anti-Semitism Lorax, and where every single American Jew needs to tell me their horror story experiences with anti-Semitism, and what I've learned from that is this is a like way bigger problem than anyone ever thought it was, because every person's story begins with, I never told anyone this before, but... And then they tell me this horror story that, like, someone should go to prison for what they, they ex- experienced. Hi, I'm Dara Horn. If you know me and my work, you know that I love teaching people the amazing stories of living Jewish culture and heritage, and not just all the bad stuff that happens to us. I've been working with the Weitzman National Museum of American Jewish History to develop an in-school curriculum to do just that. We're piloting it now in public schools. If you want to help bring an antidote to anti-Semitism into your kids' schools, contact the Weitzman's educators at theweitzman.org. dara
4: I'm listening to all of you, um, and I am growing more and more grim by the moment for several reasons. First of all, because here you are saying, I'm traveling the country. Not only are people telling me these horror stories, but they're starting with this disclaimer of like, I've never said this to anyone, But And David, I'm hearing you speak about this complicated category, and yet here we are in a country that is, incre- uh, you know, not just a country, but a culture that is increasingly governed by this notion, you know, we have affinity groups, we have legislation for protected classes, we have an entire way of looking at the world, this, if you will, to give it the the most, you know, open-hearted uh, reception, this gorgeous mosaic of, of, of different, you know, people and, and classes. And by definition, we do not fit in. So it sounds to me like, like we're doomed here right
2: oh no but I, want I want
4: all of you <laughs> uh,
3: yeah I mean as I say a lot of what I do revolves around diversity and inclusion and it's could not be more apparent to me that Judaism is treated in a completely different way than any other minority group as as you say we don't really fit into any of the preconceived Categories when you we say at,
4: more about this Ex- explain because I think a lot of us here are grappling to understand that give us give us a the sure. Rundown,
3: so I mean when you when you look at wh- when a company is is trying to bring in Diversity and inclusion trainers, you know, there's a list of um, do you want someone to talk about race? Do you want someone to talk about? Um, about sexuality about gender about religion and Judaism Kind of doesn't really fall into any of those categories. So ergo we don't have anyone talking about Judaism. Um, And there's this notion that because of that, we aren't really discriminated against in the same way that those other groups are. And um, as an LGBT person myself, I can see such a vast difference in the way that I am treated depending on which of those two aspects of my identity I reveal, um, you know. But actually, I find that I face equal amounts of discrimination for both, if not more for being Jewish. Um, but for some reason, they're perceived completely differently. Um, and I, I do I agree very strongly with what's been said about one of the huge ways to change that is to change the perception of what we are, um, that we're a people and not a religion, because when you, when you when you meet someone who perceives Judaism solely as a religion, it's very easy for them to go, oh, well, if that's why you're being discriminated against, you don't need to subscribe to that. That's a choice. That's on you. Whereas, as we know, the reality is Judaism, you could never have set foot in a synagogue in your life and still be Jewish. It doesn't shift anything, and it wouldn't shift, it wouldn't stop you from being discriminated against.
4: I want to get back to, to, to David there in a second, but I'm just wondering the real strong currents that we've been feeling since October 7th have they changed or reinforced your your views how how are you feeling
3: um it's been I mean it's been awful for everyone but I think it has made me as as people have talked about a lot of people have talked about evaluate who I can trust um it's An awful—I've—I've noticed it among Jews everywhere, but particularly among LGBT Jews, Jews having to choose a side of your identity, because so much of the LGBT progressive community is just completely against Israel, against Jewish statehood, Um, and you know, I'm seeing people who I've considered friends for years, people who I've had in my home, people who I trust and love, posting pictures of what happened on October 7th, saying, isn't this, isn't this an incredible um, cry for justice? Isn't this an amazing thing? Isn't this beautiful? In my town, um, a girl's been arrested because she got up on, in the town square and said, let's celebrate, this is a beautiful thing, this is justice. Um, and it's horrific.
4: Supporters of the well-known, you know gays for Gaza group, uh, which chickens is a thing, for KFC, you
3: know.
1: Yeah, right um, Don't they get executed in, in Gaza if that's yeah. that's
4: the uh, the grim, you know punchline of this joke uh, So back to you uh, Am I correct in in kind of reading a very just out of what you're saying a kind of very dark prognostication for the future?
1: Not necessarily I think we have a tremendous opportunity. First of all, we have to teach our own community what it means to be Jewish, but we have a tremendous opportunity in the whole panoply that you just talked about of affinity groups, which really ends up being kind of radical particularism in the guise of a certain kind of universalism. We have the opportunity to teach the true universal particular. Um you know, I A number of years ago, I I heard um, Bernard-Henri Lévy speak and he said the following. He said, the tension is not between the particular and the universal. The tension is between two notions of the universal. One that is based on the particular and one that negates the particular. The Jewish proposition is really a perfect balance of the particular and the universal. We have an opportunity to, to, to proudly stand for our particular in the context of the universal, and I don't think that that's happening out there with all those affinity groups. And um, I'm not saying it'll be easy, but we, we really have to figure out how we educate, how we teach, how we articulate what we have, which has always been countercultural and radical for the world, and was meant to be radical for the world.
2: So I actually don't think that this is a story of doom. And the reason for that is sort of the other side of my experience traveling the country and talking about these issues with different audiences. So my experience when I speak with Jewish readers is all these people coming up to me and telling me I never told anyone this before, but, and then telling me their horror story and then saying, thanks for writing your book, right? And then sometimes being like, can you help, which, you know, I, I... Yeah, I'm like about as effective as the Lorax in this, right? Um, So this is extremely depressing to me. The thing that has made me think differently about this is the responses I have gotten from non-Jewish readers. And so I actually am in those kinds of spaces. I have done like DEI for Google's worldwide employees. And I have done those... Um, you know, I, I speak in many general audience or, you know, general audience for general audiences where in places where there's like, you know, no Jews. Um, I've spoken at churches. I've spoken on, you know, like black community podcasts. I've like been in like all these different spaces. And I mean, obviously it's self-selecting people who want to have, you know, listen to something I have to say. But what I can't get over is there are just there's a whole lot of people with a whole lot of goodwill who really, really want to be in today's parlance, good allies and have no idea how and don't know anything. There is so much more ignorance than malice and that is an opportunity. That is an opportunity. Can I, can I say more about like the way that this looks as as an opportunity? Yes. Okay. So, um, what I've discovered is like when I go to speak in these spaces, people come up to me afterwards or like, this is amazing. Where can I go to learn more? And the problem is, there hasn't really been somewhere to send these people. Um, in part of my work with the museum here, um, our friend Phil Darevoff, who uh, chairman of the board and I, spent some time this summer lobbying on Capitol Hill for the museum to become a Smithsonian Institution. We're already a Smithsonian affiliate or whatever it says. Here, We're, you know, going to the, we want to get to the stage where we get to use the stationery. Um, and what I thought was sort of astonishing was, it's actually easy. To sell this idea to everyone, and here's what I mean by this: like people are really curious about who Jews are, um, and that also there is a lot of interest, bipartisan, in fighting anti-Semitism. Um, I knew it was a bad situation. Like the White House called me to be part of this. You know, I don't want to oversell this. Like the you know, however many hundred people they consulted for this White House interagency task force combating anti-Semitism. Um, And I'm like, wow, it's really bad that they're asking a novelist for advice on this, right? Like, like people are all out of ideas. Um, But one of the things, like, the thing I was recommending to them is, like, you know, there's, like, I forget how many states. It's, like, 28 states or something in this country that require Holocaust education in schools. I want to be really clear. It should be 50. I'm not arguing against Holocaust education. But there's not a single state in this country where people are required to learn who Jews are. Everybody needs to know the uh, the story about Jews in a mass grave, but that's the only thing they know about Jews, to the extent that when I was at the Dallas Holocaust Museum last summer for a teacher conference, the docents there told me, the kids who come through this museum, you know what they ask, they say, are there still Jews alive today? Because if you went to this museum, you wouldn't know. So when Phil and I were speaking to these congresspeople, what we basically presented to these people, and this was bicameral, bipartisan, um, what we presented these people was like, you're committed to fighting anti-Semitism. And they're like, yes, so yes, they're, and this is a bipartisan thing, thank God. You've got Looney Tunes people on both ends of either party who are not, but the vast majority of people in Congress are very on board with protecting and supporting the Jewish community in any way they can. So we, be- we say to them, so why are we not telling people who Jews are? Why are we letting the internet do that for us? And what I found was that this was like a very easy sell because, you know, when you speak to people who are progressives, you say, you know, we want to tell the story of American Jews as part of, as you said, this diversity, you know, this mosaic of American identities. And then we found progressive congresspeople were like, yay, sign me up. And then you talk to, you know, conservative congresspeople and whose offices you walk into and they've got, you know, Jesus saves on the wall and you say, we want to tell this story about American Jews and how we're part of this story of religious liberty in America. And they're like, yay, sign me up. And both of those things are true. This is a story that is resonant for everyone, and people really just don't know it. It's an easy sell. And that's like, to me, is an opportunity to change this conversation and going to what David said and to to what Ali said about that we are a people. That has been what's missing through this protective this protective strategy that I do not blame a prior generation for taking where we've sold ourselves as a religion during the Cold War, and that was the way to sell it. But the reality is that because of that, that has, that is, that unfortunately has led to this decoupling of the, of Jews from the the state of Israel. And the reality is we are an Am. We are Am Yisrael. That is who we are. And when you lead with that, then suddenly, it's impossible to sort of, you know, the, it, it's then suddenly it is part of what you're learning in school, is that Jews are indigenous people to the land of Israel, and that is something that is in your high school textbook and something that you need to learn in school, and that is simply a fact that we have, you know, a, we had a strategy in the past to avoid that that strategy is no longer working. It is time for a new strategy. So I've been ranting for a while.
1: One of the the challenges to doing that work, and I I love your enthusiasm and I agree with you. One of the challenges is that there is a whole trend in American academia, modernist scholars of nationalism. um, And uh, the basic idea is that peoplehood is completely a modern construct. And they specifically, like John Lye at Berkeley, with this whole book and he goes he, he he argues that jewish peoplehood is a modern construct and didn't exist be, before the modern era the weird former about the torah the, he's,
2: right? he's, he, he'll relegate it only to
1: the realm of religion right um, Noam Pianco, pianko who had been the president of the uh ajs uh, the um, american council on jewish studies he wrote a book called jewish peoplehood and american innovation and, and argues, along with these scholars, that, that, that in order to further the aims of Zionism, the Jewish community in America came up with the idea of the Jewish people. I mean, it's, it, and, but it's prevalent, and we need to fight back.
4: It's not surprising at all to learn that whenever there is a particularly idiotic and pernicious idea, it emanated from somewhere from the bowels of academia. Um, I want to, yeah, uh, I, I I want to um, I want to turn this up a notch because many of you on the stage are not just thinkers and writers; you're also doers. Uh, you're involved in one way or another with Jewish communal life and communal organizations. I want you to tell me, uh, and again, this is um, this is a kind of a Yom Kippur situation, right? Um, we we can be forgiven for everything we've done wrong up until that point but we will not be forgiven for the things that we do wrong walking out of here today uh, and so i wanted to reflect on what you think the organized jewish community uh, our our actual institutions uh have done wrong to fail to further these notions of jewish people to fail to educate us you know to invest so much time and effort on well, holocaust education and so little on actual mm. jewish education uh, what have we done wrong and what can we do better? And again, let's start with you, Ali.
3: Sure. Yeah, so this is kind of in the midst of what I'm doing day to day at the moment is working with a community um, which is a 250-year-old community. It's dying out. Um, and there's been a big push to revitalize it through um, building a JCC, building a kosher restaurant, building all of these things that haven't the infrastructure for Jewish life just hasn't existed, <clears throat> and um, something I've noticed is kind of that the, the day-to-day, you know, average, average Joe, average Jew in the street um, isn't really interested in these these big pushes for education. A lot of these people are, it's like an aging community. It's a lot of people in their kind of like 70s, 80s, 90s. They aren't interested in this big push to revitalize life after they're gone. They just want to get their bagels um, on a Friday morning and, and and keep living like the same life that they've been living. And a lot of what we talk about in, in the chapter of the book that I've co-written with Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner is about intergenerational dialogue. And I think that that is, so paramount right now because I think that the older generation feels completely alienated and isolated by the younger generation they feel that the younger generation don't want to pull their weight they aren't interested in contributing to the community they you know they feel ostracized from the conversation which is completely fair and and I I believe that younger people should be pulling their weight more when it comes to investing in the Jewish community and I think that the the younger part of the community feels that you know these concepts of JCCs and a lot of them even of synagogues feel outdated to them and they're not interested in participating in it um, because of the way that it's perceived and the way that it's um, marketed. Um, And in in the sense of what we've been doing wrong, I don't think that we have been doing enough to push these intergenerational conversations um, and to ensure that people are, these generational gaps are being bridged um, and actually finding out that Although we may have different ways of going about it, there is a common goal there. While the older generation tends to be much more focused on duty, and you know, I go to synagogue on these days and I have this meal and at this time, and the younger generation is more interested in culture over religion and preserving it in other ways. Um, we, there's a common goal of preserving Judaism um, and, and moving towards a more united future.
1: This is, I want each and every one of you to respond. So um, this wasn't really in my um, essay because it was in the 7,000-word version that I handed in, but it wasn't in the 3,000-word version. But it's in another essay in the book by Vardit Ringwald, and that's Hebrew. Our foundation champions the Hebrew language, modern Israeli Hebrew, for American Jews and others to learn modern Israeli Hebrew. We're alone. We really don't have other philanthropic partners. Um, Translation,
4: the very fact that most people sitting here today do not understand a word I just said in Hebrew.
1: Yofi. <laughs> in, in the leadership of the American Jewish community, There, even, even in the leadership there isn't a capacity. There's a capacity if they could learn. I believe that for us to be deeply connected to Israel and Israelis and to have something of real substance and power that American Jews can do every day that's not necessarily religious, that doesn't necessarily make theological uh, requirements of them, the Hebrew language is a powerful living reality that connects us to the life and culture of Israel, connects us to the humanity and vitality of Israelis. And I, I think we have to do this. I wish we could find partners to support moving this agenda forward.
2: I think that's fantastic. And, and tell me when you do this, because like it's been Total torture getting uh, for my ch- teaching my children Hebrew has been so much harder than it should have been, so much harder than it should have been. Um, I think that's absolutely important. And even and, with day yeah. school education, yeah, no, it's not. I mean, and I'm yeah. We have a way to do it. Yes. Well, I yeah. We need to talk. Um, so that's that's amazing. Um, in terms of, I mean, I don't think we need to like sort of you know uh, throw shade at like what we've done wrong in the past because I think that we what the things we did in the past were strategic then. Um, I, so I think that, but I think that they there's times to reevaluate. Um, I, as a lot of you know, I wrote this very long piece for the Atlantic uh, a few months ago about Holocaust education, which you know made you very popular. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it made a lot of people hate me, but in publishing, as you know, we call that starting a conversation. Yeah, I started a conversation. Um, and it you know it, it was basically sort of looking at that as a strategy that was intended to protect the jewish community um it was this idea that you can inoculate people against anti-semitism by teaching them about the holocaust and while there are many reasons to teach about the holocaust combating contemporary anti-semitism this is i to me this is is not an effective tool um and you can I, I can bore you with why, but um, I also th- so that I think has has been a problem. But I think that I think that there's sort of this larger strategy in combating antisemitism. Part of what you see in Holocaust education, which is selling you people on this idea that, oh, see this group of people here who you you might be bigoted against. You shouldn't hate those people because they're just like you and me. They're just like everyone else. <laughs> And the problem with this is, you know, Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else, right? Uncoolness is Judaism's brand. And, you know, this goes back thousands of years to, you know, the ancient Near East, everybody's worshiping their Marvel cinematic universe of sexy deities, and we're like, the losers in the school cafeteria with our bossy, unsexy, invisible God. Like we've never been cool. And But the problem is like if you're teaching people that, but this is like a fatal flaw in the idea of, a, of living in a pluralistic society. Because if you're telling people you shouldn't hate people because they're just like you and me, they're just like everyone else, what you're telling, what you're basically saying is that means if they're not just like you and me, it's totally cool to hate them, right? I mean, it's like, and then you're like, wait, why are Hasidim being beat up on the street all the time, right? It's like, well, they have weird hairstyles, so they're not like me and you, you know, therefore it's like. Totally fine to hate them because they're not just like everybody else so i mean that is a fatal flaw in this idea and the same in that idea of peoplehood which we've been talking about you know this is like you know the what it means to be Ami israel like you know every non-jewish society has tried to fit jews into the identity boxes that they know best Whether, you know, in this country it might be race, um, you know, it's, it's always so funny to me. And whenever I speak in these conversations in the States, it's always like, how do Jews fit into a conversation about race? That's what identity is all based on race. All you need to do is go to Canada and suddenly they're like identity is all about language. Let's talk about language. I'm like, Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Here it's all about language. So they're always trying to put us into whatever box that that society knows best. But the problem is Jews predate the box. Jews predate the box. Like um, the idea of what an Am is is this is you know, it's a type of social group that was really common in the ancient Near East, and it happens to just not be common in the West today. The reason it's not common in the West today is because we have these you know universalizing religions that have been eradicating these groups for thousands of years. And that's why we don't fit into the box. So I think that, yes, it is time to change this strategy. And I think it is time to wean hard into the content of Jewish civilization because that also has something that can benefit everyone.
0: i to celebrate Jewish American Heritage Month this and every day. I take every chance I get to celebrate everything that's great about Jewish heritage and culture. I take pride in how America's Jewish community in all its forms has both shaped and been shaped by our nation. Now is a great time to remind ourselves and share with our neighbors just how vibrant and wonderful the stories of American Jewish life are. No matter your religious beliefs, your political affiliation, your age, or your favorite podcast, JAHM is something we can all lift up together. Learn how at org.
4: It is less because of my beard and yarmulke that I ask this question and more by way of complete provocation. I understand. Uh, I understand peoplehood. All this is fine uh, and and true. Uh, there is the religious component, which you all sort of gave the mandatory shout out to, and then and then ran uh, as far as you could. Uh, I would like to make, for the sake of argument, the following the following proposition uh, that it was adherence uh, to a divinely prescribed set of rules in in a somewhat you know orthodox type of fashion. Uh, that has kept us alive, uh, even as empires larger and mightier than us have crumbled. And that failure to do so, and particularly the sort of generational tendency to see anything and everything connected with religious practice as just another theater of oppression, uh, is ruinous, because all the culture and all the language and all the peoplehood are not going to save you if you lack the sort of spiritual engine of Jewish renewal. Discuss
1: so as as I try to say in my piece, um, you need both, and this again is a dialectic it's it's a hybrid category i I firmly believe though that the idea of the Jewish people is indispensable to Judaism like, that religious structure doesn't work without the idea of the Jewish people and the and and the Jewish people has no purpose if it's not implementing the deep Torah values that 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 birth it. Um, I'm not gonna dictate to others what their personal observance should be. I think people have to work it out. But if they come at this only from a kind of labor Zionist, completely secular people of Israel that doesn't have room for the religious component, I think they're making a profound mistake also. so. You won't get an argument from me. Ali, I'm hoping you get an argument from you. (laughs)
3: Yeah, maybe slightly more. I I do agree with the idea. I mean, that's obviously, as you say, that's what it all stems from. And that's what's helped us survive as long as we have. But equally, I've personally seen, not everywhere, and I don't want to be kind of divisive or derogatory, but I've personally found that the idea of, you know, religion is the most important and central part of this has created quite a hierarchical view of Judaism and I've had people as a as a I wouldn't say secular but certainly more secular than a lot of the people I associate with I've had people completely dismiss my views about Judaism off the bat because oh well you don't keep Shabbat so what does your opinion on this have to do with anything and I I don't think that that hierarchical view of religion above all else is helpful and whether or not we may agree or disagree with the way that religion is perceived now, that is the way it's perceived by a lot of the younger generation. So if we want to keep people connected to Judaism, then we have to be able to tell them that it's okay for them to not be religious. If we tell them, well, the only way that you're gonna survive, the only way that your culture's gonna survive is if you do X, Y, and Z, it's simply not going to work. And, and I think, Judaism has always been a religion where you can, for lack of a better word, cherry pick a bit and and choose which bits of it work for you and which don't. And you know there are caveats in the Torah about you know you can not do this bit if you've got medical issues or you know there, there are always caveats. And and that's one of the things that I found beautiful about Judaism is is the ability that you can question some things. Um, at least that's how I was raised. Um, I I don't, while I I agree that it it has to be a component to it, I think that saying the only way that you'll survive is if you do X, Y, and Z is is not going to be helpful for preserving the next generation's view of Judaism. Dara, do you want to jump in? Um, Yes. um, I,
2: you know, uh, to me, Torah is central to Jewish life and identity. Torah is gigantic and encompasses so many different, uh, ways of ways of being in the world and is so inspirational for so many different ways of being in the world Can I interrupt um, and just yes, reveal well, to,
4: to this audience something that you told me, maybe in confidence but I don't think you would mind sharing because I think it's not, I don't remember. tremendously inspirational? <laughs> yeah. So Sidera so does uh, Dafiomi everyday studies a page of Talmud everyday while walking around her house so she could get both her 10,000 steps and her Jewish learning <laughs> in and if that's not inspiration I don't know what is <laughs>
2: Yes, so yeah, I, I mean, I am I am studying Dafyomi, and one of the things that I find, I mean, and you know, ninety percent of the things I read in Dafyomi, I'm like, well, that sucks. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, we're deep in Seder Nashim here. I'm not, like, I'm not loving a lot of this. Right? We're almost I, out. We're yeah, like I mean, a week well, and a half from I mean, being done. I mean, yeah, there's there's all kinds of problems, right? But like, I mean, there's a lot of it. I'm not loving. I'm not like, yay, Dafyomi. Every page I love. Like, no, no. But, like, that's, I mean, the reason the Talmud is, like, 3,000 pages long is because it includes everyone's opinions and not just the people who won the argument. And, you know, you spoke in the previous panel about, you know, Machlok uh, et Lashem Shemayim, like, argument for the sake of heaven. And, you know, the amazing thing about the, about Torah study is that, you know, is Loba Shamayam he, hi, right, that this isn't in heaven, that it is about the way we, we debate these ideas on earth. And I think that that makes this radically different from what our... Many of our non-Jewish neighbors think of as "quote religion," and this is one of the reasons we balk at that term. Is because to our neighbors, what that you know in you know Christianity and Islam, um, which is you know what these are the worlds in which we live in the West as Jews. those are universalizing traditions where it's about you know believing in a particular doctrine and also where you know in various ways and I mean obviously there's many different you know versions and brands of those traditions but ultimately the goal of those traditions is to get everybody to agree with them and that's not what we're doing our goal is not to get everybody to agree with us in fact like that would you know even we can't even agree with each other that would be the end of the (laughs) religion right that is like like we have nothing to talk about anymore like that's boring right but it's not even just that's boring but like i think that this is a really important distinction um, you know, Sally Abrams, who's here from JCRC of Minnesota and the Dakotas um, and who we're partnering with the museum as one of these initiatives, has been doing this for 20 years, going into public school classrooms, talking about, like, who were Jews, and the presentation's called Judaism on One Foot. And if many of you know the story, uh, you know, this rabbinic story about Hillel uh, being approached by this pagan saying, you know, tell us the story of Judaism on one, you know, what is the Torah on one foot? And he says, what's hateful to you, don't do to your neighbor. And the rest, you know, is t- the rest is commentary. Go and study. What I think is really important about that statement is that, you know, we think, oh, it's like the golden rule, like in Christianity. There's, oh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's not. It's not because the golden rule is has this assumption built in that what my neighbors want is going to be the same as what I want. And that is like a that is a huge ethical problem to assume that. I want. I mean, that's how you get people knocking on your door trying to convert you, right? Because like, oh, this means so much to me, and wouldn't it mean so much to you too, right? And it's like, that is not what, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor, weaves room for there to be these disagreements. For someone like you to say, like, there's no meaning in any of this without God in the covenant, and for someone else to say, like, well, actually, there's a lot of meaning in this without God in the covenant. Like, the fact that those two ideas can coexist and, in fact, are necessary to each other to coexist to me is is the beating heart of this tradition.
4: I love it. I always thought that the most beautiful part about this edict is the tseul mud part, the go and study. Yeah. Uh, because really the rest is commentary. Um, I want to ask the 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 biggish question here. Uh, we, because this is a panel with exile in the title and here we are living perhaps for the first time since maybe, you know, Talmudic times uh, in a reality in which there are two vibrant Jewish communities, uh, one in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel, uh, and one, you know, mostly here in the United States. Uh, we see so many uh, discordant notes. We hear so many discordant notes uh, between these two communities. We hear uh, about or read uh, surveys that tell us that young American Jews, in particular, are becoming less and less and less attached to Israel, for whatever that means. You could take umbrage with that. Uh, we hear uh, Israelis who are increasingly disinterested in American Jewish life in all of its, uh, you know, diverse beauty, uh, and it seems, and this is a word that you hear on literally every Jewish panel I have been to when this subject was discussed, that we're heading towards a divorce. Uh, I would like you to address that notion, and I'd like you to to contemplate whether or not the um, the the horrible attack of October seventh is going to hasten the separation or uh, bring about some uh, miraculous reconciliation? Um,
3: I mean, I can't speak for American Jewry, but Go I can ahead. speak, I could try um, what I can say about British Jewry and it's something that you kind of touched on earlier. With There isn't, there isn't ignorance, sorry, there isn't malice so much as there's ignorance, um, when it comes to people wanting to engage with anti Semitism, when it comes to non-Jews wanting to learn and and educate themselves and help. Um but what I have noticed is that there is a pressure to be the good Jew. Um People are happy to say, "I would like to educate myself, and I'd like to learn more, and I'd like to hear your experiences about anti-Semitism." But do you support Israel? Before I can, before I can help you, uh, I just need to know if you're if you're someone who's worth my support. Um, and when it comes to Young Jews divorcing themselves from Israel, I think there is an incredible pressure to do that um, in order to be accepted in non- jewish circles, not just as a as a person but as a jew. The non-jewish circles are very happy to have conversations about antisemitism and 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 talk about what they can do as long as you don't associate yourself with Israel. But I think that October seventh has created a situation where, as I mentioned earlier, those people who are caught on the fence between those two identities are having to make a choice because those non-Jewish groups are simply not accepting people who support Israel. And what I have noticed is a lot of people are choosing their Jewish side, are realizing that it means more to them than they thought it did, are realizing that if these people can only accept me when I when I d- renounce my identity, are they really my friends? Um, that's certainly a decision that I've had to make. Um, and so I would hope that it means that that, that, that divorce is, is less likely to occur. Dara, I'd like to go to you next.
2: Um, I'm gonna be very tasteless and say that uh, Hamas has achieved what even Chabad could not in uniting Am Israel. <laughs> I mean, I think it's astonishing what's happened in the last two weeks. Um, I mean, in terms of if you think about where, certainly in, within Israeli society, yeah, you know, how, how dramatically this has changed in two weeks, um, which doesn't mean the divisions within Israeli society aren't real. Um, but if you see um, how dramatically this has changed. I've seen this, I know it sounds like what, very similar to what Ali's saying, is that there, the people who were sort of on the boundary of this who have had to make a choice, whether that choice is being made for them or they're making that choice, I think a lot of people are waking up to this reality of, what it means to be part of Am Yisrael. Um, I've seen it myself in, um, you know, uh, what I call, uh, I've been now added to all of these, like what I call the panicked parents chat, which is, um, you know, whatever other parents and Jewish parents in my town where my kids are in school. And these are people who yeah, really had nothing to do with Jewish life before, who suddenly are like putting out lawn signs. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's astonishing. Like the people who I was like, yeah, you, sent your kid to a Jewish preschool and that was the extent of your Jewish identity and that was because that was the preschool that was near your house. And yeah, suddenly all these people are realizing that they're Jewish. It's kind of it's kind of astonishing. And uh I hate that that's why, but I mean, it's take what we could get. Well, I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, what I think is amazing like it, it, there is something sort of astonishing to see that like yeah, Am Yisrael is real. And it's in a way that I think none of us really quite understood.
4: Rabbi, uh, take us home. This
1: really is a watershed moment for Jewish identity in America. Um, you know, fortunately, we have a colleague here, Professor Len Sachs, sitting over there, who um, leads the Steinhardt Social Research Institute and the Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies at Brandeis University. And his data shows us that even before this, we weren't heading necessarily for a divorce because, because young American Jews who have been on birthright— are in a completely different place from their peers in terms of their sense of connection. Um, that, gives, that gave me hope before this, but they're actually playing a role in now speaking to their peers. There's, there's much more though that we need to do. I think the education piece on what the Jewish people is and the Hebrew language to connect us is really important, but there are things in Israel that have to be done also. There, I see two problems for the two communities. American Jews not really understanding the the, the internality of who Israelis are and what Israeli life is. And I really think we go a long way to bring as many to Israel and to teach them Hebrew. But the problem on the other side is that Israeli society has subscribed, Israeli Zionism has subscribed to a basic component of its ideology that's called Shlilat HaGolah, from the beginning to this day the negation of the diaspora it's it's in all kinds of subtle ways part of Israeli culture and it's a negation of even our moral choice to be here that has to end for us to be one people that negation has to end and our ignorance has to end and if we can work on that i think we have future we negate
4: the negation of exile we negate the concept of this panel and we are very happy and i'm very grateful to the three of you and more arguments coming in just an hour thank you so much
0: This has been Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, a podcast produced by the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia in conjunction with Unorthodox and Tablet Studios. If you like the show, you should check out the book, Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People. The panels were moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with my Unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. The podcast was edited by Quinn Waller. Thank you so much for listening.